Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. So, uh, Christian Smith, he's a sociologist at uh, the University of North Carolina. He spent most of his adult professional life studying the religious lives of teenagers. And uh, in the year 2005, he actually coined a term to describe the temperature of the faith of you know generation. Um, for the record, uh, in 2005, I was still a teenager. So that's why I remember this, okay? Now, here's the term that he coined. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Talk about a mouthful. Moralistic therapeutic deism. We have a graphic here to represent it, but basically uh, Smith concluded that most people view God as a combination of a sort of divine butler and a cosmic therapist. The little graphic there is God. You can see what he's saying. Hello there. You rang. How can I make you feel better right now? How can I serve you? Wow, you're looking really nice today. You're just the greatest thing ever, aren't you? Man, am I lucky to be your God. Like it's a whole sort of vibe, y'all. You're saying. Now, um, I I would probably call that self-esteemism, not the gospel. Uh, But Smith basically said, people who hold this view of God are primarily concerned with their own happiness in contrast to actually focusing on glorifying God, learning obedience, or serving others. So that makes this a false version of Christianity, but it's popular. In fact, many uh, church leaders today call this false version of Christianity consumer Christianity. Consumer Christianity. What's consumer Christianity? Well, it's the idea that God, the world, the church, and everything else orbit around me. And so, you know, consumer Christianity didn't just appear out of thin air. It's actually a part of a larger cultural movement over the last 130 years in our country toward consumerism. So as our country has has gotten what I believe to be idolatrously consumeristic, rather than the church resisting, we've just followed. Now, brief history lesson for you. You know I love history. Uh, Since the beginning of recorded history, most of the great moral thinkers have always had a pretty negative assessment of lavish consumption from Plato to Augustine to the Italian Renaissance, like over and over and over again. They call this sort of greed and hunger for luxury, um, need to consume more and more and more wicked because it corrupts the human soul. In fact, did you know that before the year about 1900, most societies had what's uh, what's called sumptuary laws built into, you know what a sumptuary law is? It's just just basically a law against uh, consumerism, consumption. So I'll give you just a few examples of it. Uh, Did you know, during the European Renaissance, sumptuary laws regulated the size of buttons on women's clothing, among other things because they didn't want your buttons to be excessively lavish, ladies. In 1512, did you know that the Venetian Senate stipulated that no more than six forks and six spoons could be given as a wedding gift? Just six. 
Did you know that in the 18th century in German states, women could be thrown in jail for wearing neckerchiefs? And this has been in America too. Did you know that the Puritans in colonial America had their own sumptuary code? And in the code, it called it an, and I quote, utter detestation, very Puritan language, for middle-class men to wear gold or silver lace or to walk in great boots and for women to wear Tiffany hoods or scarves. Any, just by show of hands, how many women's, women own a scarf? Women? Come on, be honest, you sinners. Tisk, tisk, tisk. Now, my question is, how in the world do we get from like outlawing scarves and buttons to this in the United States? Because ladies and gentlemen, allow me to present to you the United States of America. Isn't she lovely? Now I'm gonna come back to that picture in just a second, but first, let's track the cultural movement. How do we get there? Well, first, gotta rewind back to the Great Depression, at least. So in the 1920s, uh, we call them the Roaring Twenties, we came through a, a decade where literally the national wealth almost doubled, good 10 years. But then in the 30s, that was followed up by the Depression. And the Depression racked the 50 states. It was like a shockwave felt across the, the country after the 20s at least. Right. So I got a couple pictures of Louisville here for you. Uh, first, this is a picture of um, African-Americans, line, Louisvillians here, lined up to uh, get food at, 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 a, at a food line. What a lot of people forget about Louisville, uh, next picture here, is that in, I think it was 1937, the great flood of the Ohio River but wrecked the city, basically exacerbating the hardships that were already felt in Depression-era Louisville. Now, it is hard to put into words what that sort of trauma of living through a depression would do to you. People came out of this with a scarcity mindset. They came out of this with a frugality and a fiscal conservatism to them because they were scared. They were scared. Now, fast forward from the 30s into the 40s and we walk from the Depression into World War II. An interesting thing happened for uh, the United States, uh, at least in comparison to other global economies. Our national economy came out of it relatively intact. So, so basically, the, uh, the men went off to war and the women went into the factories. And for the first, well, not the first time, but one of the first great times, our country began to realize that dual income households could like be a thing. Now the war finally ends and, uh, and the soldiers come back home. And while places like Japan or England are picking up the broken pieces of their city where war took place, America was relatively untouched besides Pearl Harbor. So we came back to an economy that was intact, an infrastructure that was intact and a population of men and women with actionable skills to make a profit in the workforce. Basically, we were a military power who had fought the Nazis and won, and so we're also on the precipice of becoming an economic superpower. So what happened? What happened next? Three, two, one, baby, boom, ers. And you know, over the next 60 to 70 years, our economy flourished. Now, there are a lot of reasons as to why um, that we don't have time, but the, the real issue that 
our country's leaders were facing in the 50s and 60s is how do we convince the depression generation that consumption's a good thing? A generation that, that's frugal and fiscally conservative and with a scarcity mindset, how do we convince them that somehow like free market capitalism, let's go for it, like more and more and more is actually gonna be better for us. They did, again, that's, a, that's another sermon, they did. And so that's how we got to where we are. One of the most interesting things that I found reading about this last couple of weeks was, uh, was the way our, our, uh, our nation's leaders responded to the two great attacks on American soil. This, this totally shows you the, the, dividing, the dividing line here, just how much the country changed in 60 years. So 1941, Pearl Harbor, right? You know, when we entered World War II, you know what Teddy Roosevelt told the country? You remember what the president told the country? Yeah, it wasn't Teddy, by the way, sorry. <laughs> Franklin, you, you know what he told the country? He told the country, ration uh, all the supplies you have for war efforts. Basically, it was a call to, uh, it, was a, it was a call to self-sacrifice, to conservation. Now, fast forward 60 years from that to uh, the attacks on our country 9-11. You remember what the call was then? Go back to your way of life. Buy, spend, travel. Because if you don't, you'll be letting the terrorists win. Think about 60 years. Think about how quick that shift is. So that brings us back to our picture. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you a picture of our favorite American holiday. Is it Christmas? No, it's more important than that. Is it Thanksgiving? No, it's the holiday that we leave Thanksgiving to go celebrate. Sorry, Granny, I know you only got a few years left, but we're gonna go save a hundred bucks on another flat screen. Can we borrow the, bucks, uh, the box cutters to fend off the Karens, right? It's like, this is the mind. Think about this. We've gotten to a place where we literally leave uh, one of the, you know, most important family dinners that we have all year long so that we can go out and buy and murder like at Walmart or Target or wherever you go. Because Christmas is coming. Oh, Christmas, right. That's the celebration of Jesus' birthday. It's more, it's more of a sub theme at this point. Christmas is really about just buying our kids toys, right? Oh, so your kids don't have toys. Well, actually, <laughs> their rooms are full of toys and the basement's full of toys. And also there's a toy room on the middle floor and there's a box of toys in the garage. And we even have some toys in storage because we might have another kit. Well, we're not gonna have another kit, but they're in storage. Um, and then there's toys in the backyard and there's toys all over the floors. Last night I stepped on a Lego. There's literally toys ever. It's not about the toys. It's just, just what we do on Christmas. Hmm, why? Because it makes us happy. Oh, so you're saying you believe that more stuff makes you Happy, that's the key. Well, it's not how I'd put it, but yeah, basically that's what I just said, okay. Can we see the picture one more time? This is amazing. <laughs> just look at these crowd surfing flat screens. This is an example, y'all, of how consumerism has become such a dominant force in American society, it's literally infiltrated our faith. 
It's taken over Jesus' birthday with presents. It's taken over, you know, the resurrection with uh, candy and eggs and peeps. It's taken over sub-holidays like St. Valentine's Day with floral arrangements and jewelry. St. Patrick's Day with copious amounts of green beer. It's not just the holidays either. It's everything. Like all the lowest common denominator Christian media and film and art and literature thrown out there just to sell. Even the way they construct churches today. It's a lot of times constructed around the consumption mindset. Let's build a church that will, contract, uh, that will uh, attract the consumers. Let's, bu- let's build a church with like the rock service and the Disney kids areas and also a 15 minute TED talk which you have exceeded, Tyler. (laughs) So maybe a better title for consumer Christianity would would be this, crowd Christianity. Crowd Christianity. Because people have come to believe that a crowd is what validates a church and its methods and its theology. People have come to believe that the crowd is what church is. It's like an hour-long experience where they got to meet my tastes, you know, my taste in music styles, my taste in theology, my taste in politics, and he's to offer my kids what they want. And the second that you don't, we out to the church down the street that just fits a little better or does it our way a little better. There's no loyalty, you know, we're just going to take our business elsewhere to the one that offers the product in a more convenient or consumable way. I, I know that sounds like an overstatement. I know it does, but I'm just encouraging you, go talk to your friends who are pastors or who are church staff. They'll tell you the enormous amount of pressure the staff always feel to feed the consumer, to appease and build the crowd and to play to majority morality. Because I know the cost that comes with don't or with not doing it. Now, that being said, believe it or not, Jesus had a, a lot to say with crowds. Did you know that Jesus was a bit of a crowd pleaser? In fact, he drew crowds. So crowds aren't inherently bad. Uh, in fact, there's an enormous amount of biblical data with Jesus in the crowd. Uh, some, some scholars believe that Mark's gospel is the gospel of the crowds because Mark puts a disproportionate focus on crowds in comparison to all the other gospels in the New Testament. So just briefly, with the few minutes that we have left, I wanna show you how Jesus responded to crowds. And perhaps this crowd can make some relevant application of it over your own lives. Just a few historic theological realities here. First, did you know that Jesus consistently drew a crowd? First main thing you'll see, read Mark, he consistently draws a crowd. In Mark chapter one, verse 28, we see Jesus' street cred begin to grow. Why? Because he uh, heals a man who is possessed by a demon. So people wanna find out about him, right? Like I'm just telling you, if you heal somebody with a demon at your workplace, I'm gonna call them and be like, what's going on, right? People gonna find out about you. Second, Mark chapter uh, 145, the crowds then begin to explode because he heals um, a leper. And what's amazing is if you read this passage, when he heals this leper, he actually tells this leper, now, hey, I don't want you to be talking about me. You know, just go to the temple, offer your sacrifice. And the leper doesn't listen to Jesus. Apparently this is the one time it's okay to disobey Jesus because the leper goes out, he tells everybody and Mark 145 says, Jesus couldn't even go into crowded areas anymore because the crowds would emerge on him. He had to go out to the country and do his ministry from there and make people come to him. All because of one healed leper. He was the tipping point, which by the way, reminds me of some of y'all. You just won't shut up about Jesus because the way he's healed you. And that's a good thing. Mark 3, 9 and 20, we see the crowds begin to then grow dangerously big. 
Mark chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Uh, so they would not crush him. Crush him. Isn't that crazy? 320. Uh, it says, the crowd came together again so that they, they being Jesus and the disciples, couldn't even eat. Couldn't get away to eat. Now, uh, if you move forward to Mark chapter 6, we see the crowd reach kind of its pinnacle with the feeding of the 5,000. You've heard this story? Now, I don't know why they write down the number for this particular story. I think it's just because the crowd was so big. Like this was, a, this was the biggest number. We got, somebody's got to count this, right? And they say it was just 5,000 men. You add the women and children. It could have been 10, 15,000 people there in the crowd that day. Amazing. This Jesus drew a crowd. Now, one of the fascinating things, though, is in the middle of this crowd ramp up, Mark chapter 3, the author of the gospel reveals to us the motivations of the crowd. Why did the crowds come? Mark 3, uh, verse 10 actually tells us the crowds come with a consumer mindset, even with Jesus. They came because he was healing. They came because he was teaching. They came because he was feeding. The crowds come for what they get, not what they can give. This was true 2,000 years ago. Now that being said, uh, next, next big point here is Jesus compassionately loves the crowd. He draws the crowd, he also loves the crowd. There's this amazing moment, again, in Mark chapter six, right before Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know what the context is of the feeding of the 5,000? You should read your Bibles. In Mark six, it shows us. So right before he feeds the 5,000, the disciples come back from a mission trip. They're super excited about it. They wanna tell Jesus about it. They're also tired and hungry because they've been on like a mission trip. So like, let's, let's, Jesus says, let's go, let's go on a, a retreat into the wilderness. We'll just hang out for a few days. He basically says, we're gonna take a vacation. Y'all catch me up. So pick up in 6.32, it says, they then went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. Unfortunately though, I had the unfortunate. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. And they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And as Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And how would you feel if your sabbatical got ruined by the crowd? Here's how Jesus felt. He says he had compassion for them when he saw the crowd. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. If this was me and I'm no Jesus, but I'd be annoyed. Yet we see Jesus is filled with compassion. Now, despite the fact that he draws the crowd and he compassionately loves the crowd, you need to know that Jesus also strategically resists the crowd, though, in several different ways. Mark 1, Mark 3, Mark 7, Mark 8. You can see on the lower third here. He, it's called the Messianic Secret by scholars. He actually asks spirits and people not to spread his identity. Mark chapter six, we see him withdraw into solitude. You see this throughout Jesus' life, by the way. He goes off to pray, he goes into the wilderness, he gets away from people. And then there's this really strange thing in Mark chapter four, where Jesus himself says that the reason why he teaches in parables, you know the parables? The reason why he teaches in those is to, it's to puzzle the crowds. Okay, this is so strange. So real quick here. So in Mark 4, Jesus, again, the crowds are ramping up. Pick up verse 1. It, it, it introduces us to parables. It says, again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there while the whole crowd 
was beside the sea on the land. So big crowd. Then he began to teach them many things in parables. Now the parable he teaches next is the parable of the sower. If you've been in church long, you're familiar with this parable. Seems pretty self-explanatory, 2,000 years in retrospect, but apparently it was not self-explanatory for the disciples or anyone else. And you know how I know? Because later that night, after the crowds dispersed, the disciples grabbed Jesus and they say, can you explain to us what was going on there? Uh, Mark 4, verse 10, it says, when he was alone, he, Jesus, those who were around him along with the 12 asked him about the parables. And this is what he said to them. Check this out, so weird. Uh, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables. In order that, uh, and he quotes here, they may indeed look but not perceive and may indeed listen but not understand so that they may not turn away or they, they, may, not, they may not turn again and be forgiven. What? Now, this is a complex passage. I wish I had the time to pull the yarn here and show you how, how this ties in. But here's, here's the point here. Jesus says to his disciples, I teach in parables so that the crowd won't fully understand. So I, I don't know about you, but that leads me to the question today. What must the crowd then do to fully understand Jesus? If I want to come to full understanding of Jesus, what, what must I do? Well, we actually see it exemplified in the story, don't we? Because what do the disciples do? They follow. They follow Jesus beyond the crowd. And they get a little explanation later that night at the bonfire. Mark 4, verse 33. It says, with many such parables... Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. Huh. So one might go as far to say that Jesus knew that the crowd was a good work, but it was not his best work, his greatest work, because his greatest work would be investing in the few not the many. So my question for you today is, what are you? Are you crowd or are you core? Because if you just sit in the crowd, I promise you, Jesus loves you, no doubt about it, but you're also gonna miss something when it comes to Jesus. It's the nature of the crowd. Last big thing, I want you to notice that Jesus unashamedly and courageously defied the crowds when necessary. He was not swept away by them. Mark 15, Jesus is about to be crucified. It says, Pilate spoke to them. Them is the crowd. Uh, he spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. So look, bottom line here is this. Jesus' agenda was not their agenda. 
Did not have the agenda of the crowd. He was okay with that. He's willing to suffer for that. He was a Messiah, just not the sort of Messiah they wanted. They want a Messiah who would wage war with a sword. He was the sort of Messiah that would wage peace with a cross. And he had the audacity. Can you believe this? He had the audacity to ask the crowd to carry their cross. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Everybody together now, he called the the crowd. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anybody wants to be my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Probably a familiar passage for you, but I bet you never noticed the audience here in Mark 8. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, this sort of cross carrying stuff, that don't play with the crowd. No, 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 no. Crowds come for what they can get, not what they can give. Crowds don't carry crosses, they put people on them. And we've seen that played out more times than not today. Now I want to show you a quick, quick review here of the slide, a quick review of our four points here on the crowds. And then I'm going to make a quick application. Jesus uh, consistently draws a crowd, compassionately loves a crowd, strategically resists it, and courageously defies it. Here's what I found. I've been in ministry for 10 years, over 10 years. I've been in ministry for over a decade now. Wow. Okay, we'll reflect on that later. Um, <laughs> over 10 years. And I have found that, um, that the same way the crowds interacted with Jesus 2,000 years ago is the same way that people interact with the body of Jesus, also known as the church, 2,000 years later. It maps almost perfectly onto our experience today. First, uh, this is true for just about everybody who's here. First, you'll be drawn to the crowd. Because right? the crowd's good. This is a good experience. It's put together with thoughtfulness and pulled off by passionate volunteers and gifted leaders about the most important person there is, Jesus. You'll be drawn to the crowd. A second, you'll feel love in the crowd. You come here, you will feel the love of you. Like there'll be somebody waving a sign in a parking lot and shaking your hand at the door, coffee, all the things. Somebody will get to know your name if you sit in the same spot and you actually say hi to people. They'll provide you benevolence or care when you're in the hospital. It's incredible how this church will love you if you only come to the crowd. But over time, if you stay in the crowd, you will begin to feel resistance if you stay in the crowd. Eventually, here's what you'll, you'll, you'll process it as, you know, my faith is feeling stale. That's what you'll say. My faith's starting to feel a little stale. And, and this church doesn't take me very deep. Well, really the problem is you just kept, you're just staying in the crowd. Somebody will come up and be like, well, hey, let me help, help you get into a, a group. And you'll be like, well, I tried that once. Those people were weird. <laughs> or somebody will come up and be like, hey, let me help you get into a, a study. I, I don't, I, you know, six Tuesdays in a row, I ain't got time for that. What about Northeast Basics? I have four Sundays in a row. It's lake season. Well, here, how about this book? We give you this book for your devotional life or so you can answer those hard questions you have. I'm not a reader. What are we supposed to do? Okay. So here's what you'll notice. It's not that we've stopped loving you. We love you. It's not that there's not a seat open for you every Sunday on the crowd. There is. Come. It's just that sooner or later, we have to move beyond the crowd to the core. Like the crowd wants Jesus to change their world, the core wants to help build 
his world. These people aren't consumers, they're contributors. Jesus knew that he would change the world not through feeding the 5,000, but by intensely discipling the 12 for about three and a half years. It's the 80-20 rule. 20% of the church gets 80% of the work done and the, gives 80% of the resources. So eventually, eventually, fourth, you won't, you won't come and try to crucify me. I, I hope you won't. Nobody's tried to crucify me yet. But what eventually happens if you stay long enough, you just leave the church. Because Jesus is constantly summoning us beyond the comforts of the crowd. Uh, so today, today, my challenge for everyone in the room would be to step out of the crowd. Got a lot of people here who are new that want to integrate into our church. We would love to help you with that. Northeast Basics, Northeast Basics, Northeast Basics. Doesn't slide up there. Yeah, there is Northeast Basics. Uh, please, it's a four-week environment. It's going to be on Sundays. We're going to be running it all, like almost every month, I think. Uh, you'll learn about what our church is about. You'll learn about what we expect of stakeholders. You'll get kind of a VIP tour in week four, get to meet pastors and go behind the scenes, see all the stuff that happens on a Sunday morning throughout the week here. Northeast Basics, please get signed up for this so we can help you move from crowd to core, okay? If you're not new here, but you've kind of had a little bit of a lapsed relationship over COVID, you're kind of knocking the COVID dust off your back. I'm so glad you're here. We wanna challenge you to get re-engaged too because we need you. God knows we need you. We need you. And uh, here's what we all know. We all know that life is not found in consumption anyways. Purpose is not found in consumption. It's found in Jesus. And Jesus is not gained through consumption. No, the abundant life he wants to give us is on the other side of obedience to God, surrender to Jesus, and self-sacrificial love for the sake of others. Too many of us for too long have inhaled the toxic, invisible gas of consumerism. We've allowed our culture to define us and disciple us. So today I'm asking you to step out of the crowd. Join a new crowd built on love, Jesus' love. Help us create a counterculture, a beautiful resistance of commitment over consumerism and sacrifice over selfishness. Mark chapter 8, 34, receive this today, church. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. It's the word of the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord is calling to the crowd.